um, we are very fortunate to have back uh, Steve and Jeremy. Um, Steve was here as a uh, visiting research fellow. Um, I can't remember exactly the years now. That it, 2005. 2005, yeah. So very early on in the, um, in the sort of iterations of this programme when it's being run by Hugh Strawn and others. Um, and Steve um, has been um, engaged uh, in not only having been a serving um, officer of fleet air arm, um, but also um, has been engaged in trying to make sense of how strategies have worked out or not worked out uh, in the last two decades. Um, a moment ago, it appeared on the, the um, screen, actually, his full biography. And I, I can't go through all of the list of the um, appointments he's had uh, in the senior service because it, it reads like a sort of, you, you left feeling with the, you left with a sort of Latin term, ubiqua. He's been bloody everywhere, um, I think, by the time we get to the end of the list. Um, but it would be worth pointing out that, um, in the context of, of what we're discussing here, um, his role um, as strategy director in the British Embassy in Afghanistan, and we were, we just briefly got round to, I think we would have had a long conversation about Afghanistan and his observations that spurred him on to make this kind of research uh, today, um, that we're hearing about today. Um, we also found out, well, didn't, so I didn't know actually about your students, you live in Cornwall, um, which just is uh, from my part of the world, so I'm delighted that you're doing that. This is a, um, something of a new departure in many ways, um, Steve's own work, certainly for us, um, but we are delighted, Steve, that you've come to talk to us again after all these years, and that you um, come back now enriched with further experiences to bring to our attention. Over to you, Steve. Thanks very much. Find out how to get my presentation running. Just hit the escape. Just hit the escape. There we go. Fantastic. A very important first slide, as you can see. Um, thank you, um, Rob, for the uh, invitation. Great fun to be back here um, in Oxford. Um, I'm a bit down, I'm afraid, from the weather. You'd expect that from next naval officer. <laughs> I wonder whether I should come in and say, I've never known I might like it. <laughs> That's what we used to, but uh, probably not a good idea. Um, my background is sort of varied. I started off as a scientist. I read maths and oceanography as my first degree. Um, went off to join the Navy. Um, they wanted me to be a hydrographer. I didn't want to do that, and I eventually ended up flying. Um, they released me um, after flying and a little bit of ship driving to go to Cambridge. I did a year at Cambridge. And my big subject there was international economics, so I studied that. Um, latterly, I did some time in Afghanistan. I think I was the only senior naval officer to ever serve in Afghanistan. And there's a good story to follow on that. Um, uh, I also then sort of left the service, did a couple of things, but went into energy. And I now work in marine renewable energy, but I'm the energy analyst in our company. I should say that I'm here in a private capacity, and that nothing that I say will, will should be attributed to the company. Uh, they've asked me to, to say that. Um, uh, so it's really very much my own private thinking uh, and work that I've done. Uh, the work started really, and here is the title. The work started, I suppose, thinking about strategy. I worked with Hugh Strawn for a bit here in 2005, 2006, uh, and was thinking about how we made strategy. I was working in the policy department in the Ministry of Defence uh, and had a strong view uh, that we didn't do it very well. Um, I found that latterly when I worked uh, for the Chief of Defence Staff as his principal uh, staff officer, and again came to that same conclusion. Uh, I ended up um, after that appointment in Afghanistan, and I remember well uh, walking or getting out in that campaign away from Helmand, which was where the British forces were, 
and instead getting around the campaign. Two essentially central uh, moments for me was going out to Herat and going to Bagram to the divisional headquarters. Um, for the army officers amongst you, and I know there were a couple at least, um, Herat was amusing um, because I was a Commodore. That got very confusing and Sherrod Cooper Coles, who was the ambassador, started to call me Brigadier General. So I arrived out as a Brigadier General uh, was there for in that sort of capacity. Um, I thought this was amusing until the divisional commander in Herat got out his maps and it suddenly occurred to me that he thought I really was a Brigadier General. <laughs> so we spent some time talking about his dispositions. Fortunately, I had just read Rommel's book on infantry tactics, <laughs> and I was able to give sage advice, and I'm pleased to say that Harat is still not in the hands of the Taliban. Much more importantly, though, I talked to the J5, uh, or the planners uh, in Harat. Uh, it was a Spanish and Italian um, uh, a brigade that was out there, and equally to the planners in uh, Bagram, which is an American division, 82nd Airborne. Uh, and to both of those sets of people, I asked the same question. And the question was, what's the strategy? What are you working to? And from both of the um, sets of young majors who were the planners, I got the same response. And the response was to look down at their feet and not answer me. And then when eventually I sort of pursued them a bit, actually, the same question, the same response came out. There's no strategy, General. Uh, we haven't got one. And so there we were, uh, what we were five or six years into the campaign, with no strategy guiding it. Um, and that really would, led me to start to write more. I came home and wrote the book. Uh, I was quite pleased with myself when I'd written it. I thought it was quite a good book. Um, there is now, I see, a very, very serious flaw. I used to dine out by saying it's the best book written by a senior military officer, British military officer, for the last 70 years. And that's true, because it's the only one. But that in itself tells a story, which is that I don't think we had been thinking about strategy. That, though, is not the point of my presentation. The point of my presentation is that actually I now see, having written it in 2011, that there was so much that I was missing uh, at a much higher and deeper level. And that really is the subject of today's um, presentation. Structured in, a, in this way, I'm going to talk about um, the conventional geopolitical narrative, as I think of it, what's going on and how we tend to explain it, those of us who are working in the strategy world. Um, I'm then going to give you an all terms of structural logic to show you that I think something much deeper is going on, much more uh, profound, much more profound is going on. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, so what, the consequences. And I'm going to try and distinguish between problems, which are things that we can solve, and predicaments, which are things that we can't solve, but just have to navigate. So to start off, I'll come straight into this, which is conventional geopolitical narratives. Uh, this is Bernard Jenkins, for those of you who don't know him. He, uh, like me, um, believes strongly that we don't do strategy very well in this country, uh, and he sort of puts to his, he puts one of the problems in terms of how things have not gone uh, well in places like Iraq and Afghanistan as a lack of strategy and a lack of strategic thinking. He's right, uh, but at the superficial level. I think that it's fair to say that actually these um, endeavours that we've engaged in have not been successful. I can see little sign of them being successful. The question about why, though, is a different story, and that's something that we could talk uh, at length about. Um, this is my view. I, I use the medical metaphor, um, and I use the medical metaphor of we've tried to, com to conduct open-heart surgery on uh, other countries, uh, and we've tried to re-engineer them in many ways in our own images or similar images. It's been, <coughs> it's been costly. It's been costly in, in treasure, huge amounts of money spent by the Americans, for example. It's been costly in blood, and I think ultimately it doesn't work. 
I've yet to actually look at one of these interventions and find out that it really worked. If you want my opinion, when we look back uh, in the middle of the 21st century at these times, I think they will look at our engagements in these places uh, akin to how we look back at the Victorians, proselytizing a form of Western values and Western thinking uh, through the use of military force and development aid uh, with little uh, consequential success. Um, I don't think our politicians are uh, much interested in it much more. Um, we saw David Cameron try it out in Libya, a mistake in my view. I wrote about this for the Defence Committee. Uh, we saw him try it out in Libya, and I think we got away with that, the British and the French, by the skin of our teeth. Um, it didn't turn out as we've expected. Uh, furthermore, uh, it seemed clear to me, and I wrote about this at the time, that Lib the Libyan intervention would have implications elsewhere. I felt it might lead to uprisings elsewhere, such as Syria. I also thought it would um, skew our relationship with the Chinese and the Russians, and so it has. I felt that because we were going in there on a agenda or with a, an objective which was to do with um, protecting people, whereas actually the real agenda, as was the case in Iraq, was actually regime change. We were intent on regime change and that's what we did. I think though that um, there's been enough of this actually for our politicians to be much, much more, much more cautious about what we're doing. So I do believe that this age of neoliberal intervention is drawing to a close. I also think, though, that there are other things going on. And I think one of the things that we cannot um, stop thinking about is energy. Um, I'm going to talk quite a lot about energy today because I think it's going to define uh, the next uh, 30 or 40 years, and I'll explain why. That's a map in the Middle East. Uh, you can see those green, the black areas are where the key oil fields are. The Gahar field here is the supergiant amongst all the oil fields, and Saudi Arabia produces about between 9 and 10% of the world's oil. It's a huge, um, it's a huge oil field. Um, Iran to Iraq, this is the, really the center when it comes to um, uh, world energy. Uh, and it's worth bearing in mind that in world energy, 84% of world energy is a result of fossil fuels, of which the bulk of that, or the biggest proportion of that, is actually from oil. So oil is major. So we cannot, no matter how, we, how much I might like us not to intervene in these places, we cannot take our eye off the ball in places like this, nor can we take our eye off the ball in places like the Gulf. Um, we've seen some of the consequences of this. Uh, we saw it in Paris, um, what I would call consequential terror. I think some people will take different views on this. I think that one of the mistakes that we've made, and this is something Rob and I talked about a little bit um, over lunch, was we had not understood the proper political context. I think the context within which we're operating is a context which has, goes back to the seventh millennium. And I see it in two axes. I imagine an axis from where to the right and the left is Shia and Sunni, and on up and down is uh, conservative uh, and uh, modernizers. And you can pretty much place most of uh, the Middle East in that sort of sense, and help, it helps you think about it. I think we completely misunderstood that context in Iraq, and we completely misunderstood its inverse, which is Syria. And without understanding these contexts, I increasingly take the view that we should not engage in these places unless we really have to, and that, in, um, to use the medical phrase, we should first do no harm before thinking about what we're doing. It's not the big story, although, but it's drawing people's attention into what is the big story, I think. 
I think the big story happens at sort of three levels. The story of tragedy we've talked about, to have what we did in Afghanistan, what we're doing in Syria, that's the superficial level. There's a deeper level, which is this millennial conflict that I've been talking about. But the real deep level is the one that I want to draw your attention to. Alternative structural logics. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit first about the environment. Um, are there any climate scientists here? Well, that includes me as well. I mean, I do have a degree in oceanography, but it's a long time ago, and I can't think, remember much of it. Um, climate change, though, is happening. Uh, be in no doubt it's happening. Uh, amongst those of us who are scientists and who work in this technological area, anthropogenic climate change has the same scientific validity as um, Newtonian physics or uh, Darwinian evolution. So amongst the scientists, it's a non-issue. Um, it's not politically, I'm afraid, uh, and that's a sadness. I happen to think also, though, that it's not the big issue, um, for reasons that I'll explain. You can see that, that we see the uh, reductions in the um, Arctic um, ice flows. This is um, methane, um, which is being given off as a result of uh, climate heating up there. Here, too, uh, is another slide which, for me, actually sort of really highlights one key issue, which is the speed with which it's changing. This, uh, for the non-climate scientists here, just here is an event called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. Uh, it's the most violent um, event on the recent climate record, and during that period, the temperature rose 6 degrees in 20,000 years. It's a spike, and a big spike, and, and the most violent event. It went up there, stayed up there, and then came down later. At the moment, we're predicting 1.5 degrees in 150 years. So you can see the different rate. And that 1.5 years, that 1.5 degrees C is actually happening. Six degrees in 20,000 years versus 1.5 degrees in, 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 a, in 150 years. I'm quite friendly, and he was helpful writing my book with James Lovelock, the great climate scientist, uh, the Brit who wrote a lot about this. Um, he's 94 now, but as sharp as a whisker. And uh, he takes the view, which seems to make sense to me, that we cannot trust the models because actually what we're trying to model is so complicated. And he says that our understanding of the climate is about the same as our understanding of the human body at around about the 1750s. So I think we have to be cautious uh, about those models. Again, I speak as a, as a, as a rather out-of-date mathematician, but that makes sense to me. But I don't think it's the big issue. Uh, let me come on to what I think are the two big issues. First is economics. Um, are there any economists here? Good. <laughs> um, I'm not a Neo-Keynesian economist. Um, for those of you who are, uh, I think some of this will come as a shock. Um, debt is a big issue. We are more indebted at the moment uh, in global terms than we have ever been through history. I think British interest rates as well are their lowest for, the, for, for recorded history, certainly for the last 350 years. And this debt is a major, major issue. Um, this is a famous book amongst economists. It's called This Time is Different. And what it essentially says is that actually when you come into these sorts of situations, then, then time and again, uh, when indebted countries get to where they are and they have economic problems, actually, they um, construct a narrative which says that actually this time is different. So whether it's in 2001, in the bubble that occurred there, or 2007, there's always a narrative which takes you to, to explain to you that actually we're not going to have a problem this time. We are more indebted at the moment, much more than we were at the start of the 2007-2008 crisis. And there are, are not much more protections, despite the fact that the governments have been looking at banks and how they might do that. This is a massive problem uh, because it's actually slowing down the world economy. It's a burden, and it's difficult to see how we'll get out of it. 
growth. Growth, and this is really where we're starting to get to the nub of it. Growth is something we all talk about, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's something our politicians talk about it. They talk about um, the need to get back to sustainable growth levels. Sustainable growth is an oxymoron. As a mathematician, you cannot keep growing. If you grow at 2%, then every 36 years it doubles, and that's exponential, and sooner or later uh, it tops out. So growth cannot keep going mathematically, and it certainly can't keep going physically on a finite planet. Um, that's current global growth levels, but what you can start to see in this graph is it just starting to peak a little bit. And that's just a hint about where I'm going with this. Has anybody by any chance read this book called Limits to Growth? It's a fascinating book. It was written in the 1970s during the Club of Rome time. And what they did, they were systems analysts, uh, two meadows, a, a husband and wife, and I, and I think a Swedish was the, was the first. I'm looking for advice from Rob. He's sort of nodding his head sagely. Um, it's a fascinating book because what it basically says is that um, we are approaching, will approach in this 21st century a time when growth stops. I, I believe that we've arrived at it, and I'm going to explain why. It was in the 1970s, it was poo-pooed. It was really looked at in 2010, uh, and what a lot of its predictions are still coming true. And indeed, it was most recently looked at by the Melbourne Sustainability Institute, and almost all of the graphs which are in it, uh, I'll show one of them to you, uh, show that um, uh, all of its predictions are coming true. So let me just leave economics to the side for one side, actually put that doubt in your mind that we can continue to grow, uh, and turn instead to energy. Um, I think energy is the big issue, uh, and I'll explain why. Um, it looks to me that growth is incompatible with energy prices at $140 a barrel, and perhaps even as low as $75 a barrel. Uh, and so we've now got a massive, massive issue in energy. Uh, we watch, and I watch, energy like a hawk, because it's my job. Uh, at the moment, what I'm showing you there is um, what we're seeking to... That's um, demand over there, as predicted, and this is how we're seeking to supply this demand. Um, we're seeking to supply it with as-yet undiscovered oil fields. Um, a lot of you will um, no doubt have read in the press and perhaps been... Um, um, drawn in by the arguments about fracking, do not be. Um, the fracking um, thing is a short-lived thing. The American fracking, um, the American fracking uh, industry will probably peak. If it's not already peaked, which it may have done, it will peak by 2020. It's worth bearing in mind that each of those fracking fields actually meets, meets, meets its maximum consumption at about six months, and within 24 months it's down to 10% of its consumption. With 30 months they've usually stopped. So it will not be a um, it will not be a panacea. I can guarantee you that. Furthermore, it does not produce usually oil. It usually produces condensates, which are oil substitutes and do not have all the things that we need in oil. There's very good evidence to suggest that um, oil has indeed peaked and peaked at around about 2010, where which I mean crude oil. Um, has anybody come across the the the, the, the Hubbard's curve? Hubbard's curve. Hubbard was a uh, oil geologist professor um, who wrote in the 1950s, and he used uh, quite simple mathematics to map out. He saw what he thought was happening in terms of oil discoveries, and produced this red curve. It's called a logistics curve for those of you who are mathematicians. And what it basically shows is that when you've got a resource which is like oil, or like coal, or like natural gas, that its exploitation follows a predictable curve. This is the curve. That, um, this is the theoretical curve in red, and the actual curve that American oil production followed is that curve. 
and you can see he predicted in around about 1956, with one year, he was one year out, I think, actually, when American oil would, would peak, uh, and was one year out. There's a little bit of a spike just here, which is fracking coming in, but fracking will not last. As I've said, it's cutting back massively now, so he's just about spot on. This is a terribly important curve in trying to understand the future. Terribly important, I'll come back to it. Two other issues. Um, here is something called initial return on energy invested. It's very easy to get drawn into prices on oil. How much does it cost? Is it $75 a barrel? What's exploitable? This is much, much more interesting. It's the initial return on energy invested. How many barrels of oil do I get for every barrel of oil that I invest? In a Saudi Arabian oil field, it's something like 1 to 100. This work has all been done in New York State University by a, a brilliant professor called Charles Hall. I think he's actually an environmental biologist or an ecologist, actually, um, but it's very, very interesting work. So for Saudi Arabian oil, for every one barrel of oil you invest, you get about 100 back, 200 in the good half field. But what you can see, if you look at these oil things, they're coming down, and they're coming down over time. So we're now down to about, for a, for a new field, a new conventional field, it's about 12 barrels to one. For fracking, it may be as low as 3.5 to one. That tells us a message, because when you get to one to one, it's a waste of time. It doesn't matter how technologically exploitable it is, if you're using more energy to get it out than you get in return, it's, an, it's a sink, not a source. And what that curve is telling you is that actually we're on the other side of that, that bigger curve. It means that actually energy, and particularly fossil fuels, or oil in particular, is getting more expensive to extract. And that will not stop. We have seen no big new oil fields. There are no big new cheap oil fields. And it doesn't really sort of matter in terms of the price, because what matters is that actually if we can't, if we use more energy, it doesn't matter how much it costs, we use more energy to extract the oil than we get in return. There's very good evidence to suggest that ethanol and the use of biodiesels actually uses more energy um, than, than it returns. Not quite as bad as the, um, the situation in Japan not so long ago, where actually they managed to put some wind turbines up in completely the wrong place. And we're so embarrassed about it that they're actually powered. So they're powered by electricity to make it look as if they're working. Um, right, this is the Limits to Growth um, book that I mentioned. The reason I've drawn this up is to just pull into that list diagram. I won't bother you with it. This is what's called system analysis. And essentially, it uses a one-dimensional mathematical model to come up with a, a one-dimensional look at the world. Uh, and one thing I want to point your attention to is this. This is industrial output. Industrial output is growth. Growth is wealth. And where do we see the peak in this? It's systems analysis. We see the peak at around about 2015, 2017. And if I were to show you the Melbourne analysis, which I haven't got, it shows the dots just running up here. Now, what you can also see here is that actually it's coming down the other side. And I want you just to start to think about the idea of a massive reduction in global GDP. A, a reduction in millennial proportions, perhaps 23% in the next 15 years, which is what I'm predicting. Um, when I saw that, it really made me think a lot, but I wasn't totally convinced, because you can't actually, it's quite difficult to actually work out to relate that to actual proper GDP. But it really set me thinking, uh, and it set me thinking about what was really going on in the world. So let me just leave that. It's the first bit of analysis, but it's not the final part of the jigsaw. And let me come to really what I think is the more interesting part of the jigsaw. Um, this is Hubbard's curve, again, but it's used with CO2 emissions. 
So what we're now looking at, and if you think of CO2 emissions, what do they represent? They represent the burning of uh, coal, oil, and gas. So the three big fossil fuels. And what you're seeing here is that this burning is following, again, a similar curve. Now, if you are to, if it's a climate scientist here, they would show you a thing which shows that CO2 is going up. So we see more and more, and they get very, very, very worried about how much, how much fossil fuels are being burned. I'm less worried. I'm less worried because I think the fossil fuel burning throughout the world will follow this curve. That's a good thing for the climate. It's a disastrous thing for the economies. It's disastrous because actually we're talking about reducing GDP over time, and I'll connect this in a second, <laughs> reducing GDP over time following pretty much the curve that we saw in that limits to growth work. I'll just connect those two in a slightly more sophisticated way. Um, this is the one bit of maths. It's not that difficult maths. It's not that difficult maths because I'm not very good at maths. Uh, it's not that difficult, but I just wanted to get, get the, this is the original part of this presentation, the original thinking. And what I'm doing in this is I'm just connecting about five things. It's, this is the basis of a paper that it's sort of half drafted. It's for the Royal Society. It's not a theory. It's more a hypothesis. But I want you to run, run you through it because it really matters in terms of an understanding the structure of our future. What's the first thing? GDP. What I'm saying is GDP here is equivalent to GDE, which is gross domestic, domestic energy production. So I'm trying to make a link between how much uh, we produce as human societies and how much energy we use. There is a very close link between these two things. People tend to assume that, that um, economics production is a function of two things. Um, my economist colleague will probably say usually people talk about uh, the facts of production are capital and labour. Well, there's a third critical one, and it's energy. Energy is critical. Uh, it's a critical factor of production. It's so much all around us, we don't even really think about it that much. But it is a critical factor of production, in my view, much more important than labour. So I think that we can actually start to look at GDP, how much we produce, and the energy we consume and produce it, and think of one as a proxy for the other. I also know that if I look at my energy supply across the world, uh, you may think it's all varied out there, but it's not actually. 84% um, of the world's energy is both transport and uh, stationary energy is fossil fuels. It's a mix between um, gas, between coal, and between um, oil, but 84% is fossil fuels. Anybody talks to me and says what, which, which of those is, is the most important, it doesn't really matter. I think the key, thing that I, the key message that I've arrived at is that we're going to need them all. Nuclear makes up a relatively small proportion. Hydro and renewables make up the rest and still a pretty small proportion. And one thing I can tell you about nuclear and hydro working in the business, we will not grow these at the levels that we need to. It doesn't matter how hard we go in renewables. We'd love to do it. We'd love a bit more money to do it as well if there's any investors out there. But we'd love to do it. But we will never be able to grow them at the speed we need to to actually replace fossil fuels as they start to burn down. So um, I'm going to make the assumption that actually that because 84% of the world's, um, fossil uh, world's energy is fossil fuels, that actually I'm going to call it 100%. So roughly speaking, I'm going to say that the way that the energy in the future will map out will be according to that curve. So the energy supplies that we'll have to do the work in the future will follow the Hubbard's curve. So if I, that's what I'm essentially taking, is I'm ignoring nuclear, I'm ignoring uh, renewables, I'm assuming that they won't grow that quickly, or certainly not quickly, and therefore I'm making as a simplifying assumption the idea that actually um, fossil fuels uh, 
will be our primary energy source and that actually it will start to decline as a primary energy source following that curve. Um, what's the best proxy for fossil fuels? Um, in terms, it could be kilowatt hours that I burn, it could be oil, barrels of oil that I burn, it could be uh, whatever, joules, so on. I could actually have a look at a very complicated mathematical equations and try to sum those, but a much simpler um, way is to, to relate it simply to CO2. They all uh, um, push CO2 out in the atmosphere, and that's why that curve that I showed you originally is CO2 uh, following the Hubbard's curve. We then assume that it therefore follows that I can use CO2 as a proxy um, for energy use. I can use energy use as a proxy for GDP. And it therefore follows that our GDP, I think, will follow the same curve, the Hubbard's curve. So in other words, what I'm saying is that not only does that represent CO2 emissions and how much we use energy, I'm also saying it represents our future GDP. Now, if I look at that future GDP and take where we are, we're about 2010, 20, was it about here? If you look at that reduction to we get to 2020, that means a global reduction in GDP of around about 7 to 8% in the next five years and a further, I think the figure is about 16% in the 10 years after that. So that is a global reduction in GDP approaching 25%, that sort of figure, it's rough and ready, in the next 15 years at a time when the... Um, the world's population continues to grow. So not only is GDP going down, wealth reducing, to th think about it another way, but also the population's increasing, so GDP per capita is going down even more quickly. And I think this is the issue. I think it's, this is the structure of our future. It's a future in which there is much less uh, wealth out there, in which um, countries are having to cope with a quite different structural future than they're, they're um, used to. We, all of us in this room, have spent our lives on this side of the curve. All of us in this room have spent our lives on this side of the curve. We've fought wars uh, using lots of energy. Um, we've used huge amounts of energy around the world to do whole loads of things. One of the things we've used huge amounts of energy to do is to extract energy. Um, we've, I've talked a little bit about fracking, but I can tell you the oil and gas uh, offshore market, which makes up 30% of the... Um, uh, oil and gas produced in the world is in carnage at the moment and things are cutting back like nothing I've ever seen. It's incredibly shocking for us. Watched, fortunately, I'm in renewables, but it's carnage. So this sooner or later will show up in uh, reduced production. There may be a slight glut of oil and gas at the moment, but it will not last. We're absolutely certain of it working in the energy industry. And let's just take those two, and this really was the final bit of it for me. And I looked at that graph, and I looked at that graph, and I thought, goodness me, those are similar. That's not a very mathematical observation, but it's an observation that's important, because in a way, they're very different logics and very different sciences, but they arrive at the same conclusion. They arrive at the conclusion that the year of growth is over. I'm absolutely certain of it. And as I start to see the world in a different way, I see the things that are happening around me in a completely different way. I see things like uh, the Arab Spring. What started the Arab Spring off? It was a, it was a Tunisian uh, who was struggling to um, feed his family, set himself on fire. My brother, who's a brilliant Arabist, was talking to an Egyptian about two to three years ago. He said, what's the problem in Egypt? And I, I'm not an Arabic speaker, but uh, his Egyptian friend said, uh, he used the Arabic phrase, the people are hungry. The people are hungry. Um, migration is not, to my mind, what we're seeing, a political issue. It's an economic issue. 
and I think it's just the start. So anybody who thinks this migration thing's going away, um, if I'm right on this, think again. It's just the start. What will happen? Um, I use the term predicaments and problems because actually I think this is a predicament and I can't see a solution, which means that the only issue is how we navigate it, how we navigate it as human societies. Um, I'm early in my thinking here, and it'd be a great subject uh, for questions, but I'm starting to think about what sorts of things will happen as a result of this uh, end of growth, uh, the start of uh, contraction. I call it contraction. I think it's the great economic contraction, which is possibly starting, and what that will mean. Um, bear in mind that all our Western systems, the banking systems, uh, the pension systems, are based on the idea of growth and the need for growth. And at the moment, we are not growing, despite the fact that we've had over six years of quantitative easing and interest rates that lower low as they've been uh, for generations. Despite that fiscal stimulus, we're not growing. I think we'll see debt defaults. I think we'll see fiat currency collapses. Indeed, it's happening. Venezuela is in the middle of hyperinflation, and I don't think Venezuela will be the last place to have it. I think we'll also see banking system failures. Banking systems are designed for growth. That's how debt gets repaid. If debt can't get repaid, we're likely to see banking system failures. In terms of politics, increasing volatility. I think we're seeing it already. Uh, we can see it in Europe. I think we'll see the rise of um, the left and the right. Again, I think we're seeing that already. And I think actually there'll be a general slow recognition of what's going on. I don't think it'll come, the lights will come on straight away, but there'll be a slow recognition that Neoliberalism uh, is over. When I said to you that I felt that people will look back on us in the Victorian, as the Victorians were in the 21st century, proselytizing a um, neoliberal system through war and through um, development aid, uh, there was a third one to add to that, and it's the business system and our economics. And I think actually that I tend to look now on business schools in a strange way, but I look on them in the same way that people look on um, uh, the madrasas. I look on them as exporting an idea of Western uh, profits and capitalism, which is based on uh, lots of energy. People don't realise it, but it is. And that actually I think that idea will come to its, its close. So there are three things that we've been proselytising not to. Societal, I think we're going to see mass migration. I just think that's the start of it. It was obvious, even I wrote a paper on this about 15 years ago, because it was obvious that the population of North Africa was growing more quickly than its GDP. So, you know, people are getting poorer, so they're going to migrate. Well, I think this is going to get worse. I think, think we'll see the blaming of the other. I think we'll see reversion to localism. Internationally, though, it's all going to be a bit variegated, because a lot will depend on where you live and what sort of society you live in. I tend to think the poor societies will, will probably do as well as any because actually they're poor. And what we're talking about is a return to poorness. So I think um, my wife is from uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, we've watched, um, the, we were in Africa recently, and you can see the poor societies, which they do seem to have, and it, it's poor in some ways, but, but actually they get by. Um, they're used to getting by because actually they have much less to get by with. I see, think that what we will see, though, and this is very general, I think we will see... Um, the middle-income countries are where we'll see the first uh, major problems. And if you just think about what's happening in the world, Brazil um, is having significant trouble, so is South Africa. Venezuela is in serious trouble. Uh, so I think that's where we'll see. It will come from the, from the periphery towards the core, 
the core being the G7 nations and the G20 nations. Of the G20 and the G7 nations, a lot will depend on how you do and how you do with energy. If you're a major energy importer like Japan, you will seriously struggle. I think those nations which have a higher degree of energy security will actually probably do better, uh, but none will do hugely well. Um, the, 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 the energy use matters a lot. If you look at Canada and Australia and the US, their per capita energy use is twice as high as the EU nations, so I think they'll struggle. It's very interesting when you look at EU and what's going wrong in the EU. One of the most interesting facts is when you look at the pigs nations, Port Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece and Spain, they're the highest energy importers in the EU. There are other issues, but they're the highest energy importers. And again, I think that's a factor in their struggle. Um, and I think actually it's the energy importers who will struggle. What does this mean for the character of future military operations? Uh, your guess is probably as good as mine, actually, but I think we're going to see different things. I don't think we'll, we might see high-intensity war, I don't know, but I think we'll see a need, increased need for military aid to the civil power. Um, we're seeing it already in the Mediterranean. You know, you, we'll see the need to uh, patrol our EZs, conduct disaster relief. Notice that none of this is to do with climate. I'm not saying that climate is an issue. This is to do with economics and energy. Resource security will matter, the protection of resources. Um, sea lines of communication, the ability to protect those. I think there will be conflicts, but I think we'll sort of see them, and I think actually we'll not want to engage with them. We would need to engage in one or two places in the world, though, um, and the obvious one is the Gulf. The second obvious one is probably the Suez, but actually the Gulf's the most important one. Border controls, I think the rise of the need to control borders. I think we'll also see um, failures in some of the great uh, multinational experiments, starting with the EU. I don't think it'll be a question of the UK getting out. I think it'll be a question of the EU um, struggling to cope with this massive migration challenge, which can only get worse. I see, think we'll see um, the counterterrorism. I suspect will continue, um, but it'll be sort of different actually, because in a way it will be it will be overtaken by these bigger epochal events. Will we see war? I honestly don't know. Um, I can't, the problem with war is it's extremely energy intensive. Um, you know, I think it takes 400 um, to get one, one barrel of oil into Afghanistan took about 400 barrels. It was an extraordinary number actually to actually make that work. Um, so I don't know. Um, is this a um, picture in which I, I sound? Um, Pessimistic, you know, in the funny way, in the long term, I'm actually quite optimistic. So I sort of think, well, this has sort of got to come. And I'm not sure, as I look around the world and watch us driving around at high speed all over the place, actually, where we're all really going uh, and what it's all about. So I think, actually, one way or another, actually, I think we could well find that um, uh, the world, which will be a slower world and a smaller world, um, will perhaps in the long term be better. But that ride down the other side of that graph. Uh, will be complex and I think it's the thing that will define uh, the next 30 to 40 years, certainly the rest of my life and possibly the rest of all of our lives. Please challenge me. Please challenge the science. Um, it's the first time I've presented it like this. Um, again, I don't want to be apocalyptic because I feel strongly that actually it's important for us to understand this because I believe that this is a predicament for us to navigate and not a problem for us to solve. Thank you very, very much indeed. Um, if we weren't already depressed by the weather uh, <laughs> <laughs> of this country, then I think we should probably be saying now.